you know, when you think about who is the Minnesota Museum of American Art, you can't you can't have a Minnesota Museum of American Art without indigenous art, without native people. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota, a podcast about the Native American experience in Minnesota and beyond. I'm Rebecca Crook Stratton, your host, Secretary Treasurer of the Shakopee Midwakton Sioux Community. This podcast is a project of Understand Native Minnesota, a campaign focused on improving the narrative about Native Americans in Minnesota's public schools. Today on the podcast, we have Kate Bean, the Executive Director of the Minnesota Museum of American Art. Our conversation focuses on the importance of elevating diverse voices and how Indigenous art and culture is an invaluable part of our history in Minnesota. I had such a great time talking to Kate. I hope you feel the same when listening to it. Um, Hello, everyone. Welcome to Native Minnesota. Today, my guest is Kate Bean. I am very excited to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Kate, you have uh, a lot of history um, in the community here in the Twin Cities, and you come from a family that uh, is artists and activists and community organizers. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up and kind of how your family inspired you to kind of choose the path that you're on today? Sure. So. Yeah, so so I am I'm Berewa Kantuan Wakpetuan Dakota, um, and Muskogee Creek on my mom's side, uh, and also French and English. Um, and as my father always says, our family is about as Minnesotan as you can get. We're descendants of Fairbos, we're we're Eastmans. Seth Eastman was was a, a graduate of West Point, and he was English, and he was one of the early landscape artists in Minnesota who documented a lot of early Dakota life. And you see his work across the, the world. Um, you see it in the state capitol. You see it in Washington, D.C., um, inspired the state seal. <laughs> his work is, is, is really well known. Um, and we come from, uh, he intermarried at, at one point with a Dakota woman. And we come from that family. Um, and we're also fair bows and, and we're also descendants of Cheato uh, Otume, which is the community to the side, the village to the side, which was a community that resided at Bere Makaska uh, a number of years ago in, in the 1830s. And um, that was a community that was led by our grandfather, um, Chief Cloudman, Machpiawi Chasha, and his wife, Champa Dutawi. And um, they actually, he... Makpiawi Shasha came from Black Dogs Village, which most today, today most people know as Egan, Minnesota. Like if you go down from the outlets into the, the river banks there, um, that's actually a traditional village site. That's where Black Dogs Village was. Um, and then we're also descendants of Kaposia of, of Little Crows Village as well. So we have a long history of ties here to a lot of the traditional village sites here in the Twin Cities metro. And um, and today, you know, as a citizen of the Flandreau Santi Sudakota, the Wakpai Pakshan Oyate, we uh, we come from a tribe that is currently in South Dakota because our family was among those that were um, that were removed um, that were that ended up in South Dakota after the Dakota War, which is a lot of 
Dakota people are still scattered throughout um, and don't reside in Minnesota now because of that um, experience here in Minnesota. Um, You've had a tremendous career in art history here in Minnesota, and one of the things you've accomplished is bringing attention to how Native American art and culture is an important part of Minnesota in American history. Do you have a personal mission or goal that's anchored your work over the years? I think what I always go back to is just the, the, the topic of representation. Adequate and authentic representation. Um, you know, being, coming from a family that didn't have the privilege to grow up here. Um, I, growing up, I always knew that our, our, our family was from somewhere else, and I grew up around the country in different spaces. My father was born and raised on a reservation, and I knew that we had moved there from somewhere um, and had read my grandfather Charles Eastman's books. And Charles Eastman, Ohiesa, had written about um, what Dakota life in Minnesota and in the Twin Cities metro area before the Twin Cities was like. And so when I moved back here as an adult, um, I was looking for what are the signs of that? Where is the sign? Where are the signs of our existence? Where are our people now? And it was interesting to notice that within a lot of public spaces that were incredibly historically significant to us and continue to be historically as well as as significant to us presently, um, there really was no representation. Um, sometimes there'd be a small plaque with some outdated language from the 1920s or, you know, oftentimes when you look at public art or, um, plaques in public spaces, they speak more to the times of which they were installed than what's actually on them. And so it was interesting to look around and realize there really was this physical erasure that not only, you know, was I and and our family and our community a representation of that erasure. Um, but we were seeing the ways in which there was evidence of it across the landscape. And coming from a family that had so heavily documented that landscape, um, I just had this, this sort of magnetic pull to, to make a change and to make sure to help elevate the voices of our communities so that we can support one another and being very visible because this is and always will be Dakota land. Um, so you have a new position. Um, congratulations on your new role as executive director at the M, as they call it, but uh, also known as the Minnesota Museum of American Art in St. Paul. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this new role and kind of your your plans as the executive director? What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, so it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I served for six and a half years at the Minnesota Historical Society. I was the director of Native American initiatives there. Um, And I loved that work. And I love the people I worked with and being able to engage with community. Um, And so I wasn't looking for for employment elsewhere. Um, But it's interesting because this this position came uh, into being. um, And you know, a a good friend of mine that recently passed away, a Ojibwe artist by the name of Jim Denemy. Um, was a big advocate of the M. And he reached out and, and advocated for the M <laughs> to me when I was going through the, the hiring process and answered a lot of questions. And, you know, it was clear to me, you know, with Native people on the board and with the support of Native artists, that this was a space that Native people felt um, there was a place for us. 
And so, you know, if you look at historically the the who the M has been, it was started in the 1890s really by community folks who really wanted to focus on community arts. And it was initially a school. Um, and as an educator, you know, I've taught for years at Minneapolis College and teaching now as adjunct faculty at the University of Minnesota in American Indian Studies. And so, and I come from a family of educators. My mom was a kindergarten teacher. My, my father was a college instructor. And, you know, coming from that background of education, the fact that the M was founded as a school by community people. But thinking about when it was founded in the 1890s, that those community people did not include us, you know, and that the mission really over the years has been about community partnerships and community art and really focusing on those artists that don't always get as elevated as prominently as others. Um, there's a lot of big focus on craft. There's a big focus on artists who, who don't have the same exposure as others. And we have a collection of 5,000 um, wonderful pieces that speak to a lot of diverse facets of Minnesota and represent a lot of diverse communities. We have 100 George Morrison works, and it's the largest collection of George Morrison works. And his, his, uh, his work is most recently being featured on the U.S. Postal Stamp, and two of those, um, two of those works come from our collection. And so you think about who is the Minnesota Museum of American Art. You can't, you can't have a Minnesota Museum of American Art without indigenous art, without native people, um, without Dakota representation and Ojibwe representation and Ho-Chunk representation. And so I really saw it as an opportunity to um, enter this space that has a lot of, you know, you know, we're a small museum, but there's a lot of possibility there. Um, and we've been in existence for a long time in the downtown corridor of St. Paul. And initially we had some 2,100 gallery, 2,100 square feet of gallery space. And we're going through a, a capital project where we're going to be broadening that into 6,000 square feet of gallery space. And the focus is on community partnerships, working with diverse communities um, and being um, very representative of this state and region in terms of Minnesota arts. And in talking with a lot of Native artists in the region and Native museum professionals, you know, one of the things I've realized, coming from my background in history too, is that oftentimes the ways in which Native people in Minnesota get identified or classified by whether it's anthropologists or archaeologists or linguists is we get pulled into other spaces, right? You know, the Ojibwe get pulled north, Dakota get pulled to the plains, Ho-Chunk get pulled towards Wisconsin without any real understanding which, of, of something that we all know, which is that this is the center of Native arts in this region. And we all know this, and we, and we want to elevate that. We want to work together to make sure that the world knows that. So... We're, there's no shortage of Native artists, right? Um, our communities have been producing amazing art in all different mediums uh, for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. So, But we're not always in these public spaces or in these community museums. And so how do, in the work you're doing, how do you lift up those artists and bring them into these spaces or even let them know that, you know, they, they have a spot at the table now. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the work you're doing to 
um, kind of uncover and lip, lift up our, our Native artists across the region. Absolutely. You know, I come from a family of artists that didn't always call themselves artists, that didn't know they were artists. I mean, I met my husband and he, he had no idea he was an artist and he was always making things for ceremony and like creating things and taking pictures. And, um, and he, you know, I, I started realizing that um, so many in our community, whether they're community artists who know that they're artists, come from a family of artists, or who don't define themselves as artists, you know, we all have, we, we all have stories to tell. And for me, it's really down, it really comes down to storytelling and community engagement. And I think that when, you know, within my background in public history and community engagement, it was all about building relationships. And I worked at an institution previously that did not have good relationships with indigenous people historically and was working to repair some of that and, and had done a, a really good job over the years and has a ways to go as everyone does, um, but had, had certainly made some, some headway in terms of um, helping to build relationships and sustain relationships. And for me, you know, it's really important to go out into community. It's important to, to go and, and visit artists in the spaces in which they're, they're making art. It's important to go out into community and see, you know, who is it that people are wearing? You know, are they wearing their Cole Jacobson shoes, their Gianni Whitehawk earrings? You know, we, who is it that we're, that we're representing um, and who is it that, that we all know of within our community, but maybe the broader public doesn't know about so much? And, you know, how, how do you help lift up those artists and, and help give a platform? And I think that there's a number of great organizations who are doing a lot of really hard work. Um, and part of what I'm interested in is not reinventing the wheel, but in supporting others in doing that work and figuring out where is it that we can play a part in terms of contributing to that. And so it's really about relationship building. It's also about a different definition of art. You know, our definition of art, you know, people often, I know maybe it sounds cliche, but people often say there is no no word for art in Dakota. You know, it's just something that you do, and and art is, is a part of your everyday life right? It's a part of what you wear and what you create and what you use. And so the idea of this, of, of art being about a painting that only certain people can hang on their wall, um, that's not what art is. And so really helping to redefine what is art, I think, is something that our communities have been doing for a long time and we want to continue to support. I think... Thinking about art in a different way, I actually, um, my middle daughter is, we had to pick books for them to read, a parent-suggested book, and so I chose Water Lily oh, for her, and so I am rereading it, too, so that we can yeah. talk about it. You know, there's a couple different uh, parts of the book where, functional art, where um, Bluebird makes moccasins for, um, is it Little Chief? And, mm -hmm. you know, they're a beautiful piece of art, but they're functional. Yeah. Or she talks about, you know, the the pillow and mm -hmm. one side of it is uh, adorned with quill work and then they flip it over at night for functional use. So yeah. um, art is, you know, it, it can be divine, defined in all different ways. And there's our art in Native communities is often very functional. 
Absolutely. And, you know, Ella Deloria, I just love her, you know, who wrote Water Lily. She, um, you know, she was an anthropologist. She worked with Franz Boas and she was a, a, a woman who in her time was was so ahead of her time for for a woman in general, but as a Lakota woman to 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 make those kinds of contributions and to have that that kind of skill that she had and that 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 know how of documenting um, and storytelling. And I often think about, you know, as the mother of two little girls with one on the way, <laughs> I, I often think about, you know, how is it that we teach our kids? And with my kids, you know, we take them out picking tipsila. My husband's Lakota from Pine Ridge. So <laughs> we, we go out there and, and pick tipsila. Here we would pick tipsila. But um, we go out and pick, you know, wild turnips and, 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 um, and medicines and herbs and plants. And, and we teach them how to make chanshasha and you know, we teach them how to braid um, the tipsila. And, you know, that is an art form that we hang on our wall, <laughs> but we use it. And in doing it, you know, we teach them the prayers that go with them. We teach them the stories and the teachings that go with it. And what all of that does is all of those teachings, it's so intrinsic in how, who we are as Native people. It teaches them their place in the world. And it teaches them the relationship between them and the earth and the animals and the plants. And that's art, too. Um, you know, I think about the M in particular and its location being in downtown St. Paul right along the river. And I think about that history of that place, you know, where it was uh, has a history of, of uh, trade and of communities um, sharing with one another. And a network of of sharing items as well as knowledge and stories, and the ways in which art does that same thing, you know. And so that that idea of um, the ways in which the river plays a part in artistic practices, I think, is really interesting. And so when you think about the M, you know, this is a, a space that's gone through multiple buildings. I'm the tenth executive director, and it's gone through multiple buildings. There's been times where there was no building. There was no place to house the collection. Um, and so there's, there's a heart there that's much more than a building. It's about values and it's about um, representation and storytelling. And I think one of the reasons, honestly, that I was probably hired for the job is because I have a lot of knowledge around the history of that place where now it's going to be and how do we connect art to that place. You just mentioned that you are the 10th executive director of the M, but the first indigenous woman. Um, what does that mean to you? And, and what kind of opportunity does, does that give you and, and the greater community to be an indigenous woman in this space? Well, you know, it's interesting because our new building is, a, it's, an, it's an old historic building. It's the Pioneer Endicott building. And so the fact that a Dakota woman is leading a, a very old historic organization in the pioneer building um, as a Dakota person um, whose family um, was not allowed to, to essentially live here. My grandfather, Charles Eastman, actually tried to come back as, as an adult after, after living elsewhere after the Dakota War and couldn't find work. Um, and so it tells me that we're making progress. And it tells me that this is a really great opportunity to be living because we have a voice and we're using it and we can be at the table when decisions are being made. And we fought a long time and our ancestors fought a long time 
and struggle through a lot in order to be able to get to this point. And so I'm just so appreciative of everyone who came before me because I wouldn't be able to be here today without all the sacrifices that they made. And as a Dakota woman coming into these spaces, you know, I, I, I know a lot of professional Native women know what it's like to walk into primarily white spaces and to bring your own seat to the table, <laughs> you know, and to figure out um, and carve your own space there because it wasn't there before. Um, and in fact, we were kept out of these rooms. And so it's, it's certainly, you know, a, a responsibility in a lot of ways, um, but it's also late coming. You know, it, it should have happened a long time ago, and we have a lot of catching up to do. There's some great exhibits out there to learn more about Minnesota history. One that I recommend checking out is Our Home, Native Minnesota at the Minnesota History Center. The exhibit includes historic and contemporary photos, maps, and artifacts that tell Dakota and Ojibwe history. Find more information at mnhs.org. Now back to our episode. So Dakota and Ojibwe peoples were the first people of this land. Yet when we talk about Minnesota's history and culture, Indigenous art is often left out of the conversations. Why do you think that is? Because we're such a small percentage of the population at large. You know, when you think about the fact that we're, what, 1% of the population in this country, and then, um, you know, you, you think about the different tribal, tribal groups that make up even a smaller <laughs> percentage. Um, and so we're often not seen. You know, people say that we're, we're some of the most invisible people in this country. And that's because people either they just don't see us because they don't know that we're still here or they don't recognize us because we don't look the way that they think that we're supposed to or they think that, you know, they, they, they misrepresent us as something else. And I think in terms of the art world, oftentimes um, in the past, when you look at the history of museums, the history of collectors. It's a very violent history in terms of extraction, taking from community, taking from artists, um, you know, artists in, in prisons and in boarding schools that were prisons making artwork for tourists. Um, you know, there was this very extractive, very, very difficult history around um, art when it, when it comes to the, the relationship between those who came into our lands and occupied our lands and the ways in which we think about art. And it also changed the way the, some of our artistic practices were done. And I think that for a number of years, and I've seen this for years, I, I worked in jewelry stores and I worked in art galleries to, to make my way through college. Um, and oftentimes people would come in and they would have this set notion of what Native art was supposed to be. It, was, it could only be historic and, and so-called traditional without this understanding of what contemporary art is. Um, and contemporary art is very, very popular right now um, for good reason, because we make beautiful things and our, and our community members are so incredibly talented. And so we're living in a time where people are finally um, starting to take notice of that and we're, you know, we have uh, some amazing artists who are pushing the boundaries in terms of representation, both in the media um, and in film and in books and in the visual arts. 
um, and academically as well. And so, and within our communities. And so, you know, I think that as Native people, we have fought so hard for acknowledgement as a first step, you know, and I think about when I teach about Native history, how so many of these different events and topics over the years are about acknowledgement. Acknowledgement of just being a human being, acknowledgement of our rights to exist as Indigenous people. And through the art, we're getting to that next phase, past acknowledgement of actually belonging um, and being able to, to yell from the rooftops, essentially, this is who we are. And Native art, I mean, especially right now, like you said, there's so much wonderful modern Native art out there. Mm -hmm. But now that we have a place at the table in all these different spaces, especially museums and um, our Native artists are, are popping up kind of all over the place in in community as, as projects like the Waterworks Project and mm -hmm. Lower Failing Creek, um, but it also opens the door to talk about history. How do how does art, um, you know, really start to to tell that that historic context, but then bring it into the modern world to really open up some of those conversations that, as Minnesotans, uh, we just haven't really had. You know, I think that's that question right there is exactly what drew me to the arts. Um, you know, coming from a background of 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 knowing our history here in Minnesota as Native people and dealing with a lot of tough histories. And how do we um, talk about these difficult histories in places like Fort Snelling, for example? Um, how do we uh, make sure that, that our communities are at the table for these things, um, for these spaces, uh, are part of what happens within these spaces in terms of decision making? But then how do we share the stories? And, you know, in doing a lot of community engagement with Native people and our community around different um, public spaces, whether it was Bede Makaska or Badote, you know, one of the things that that came up over and over again was the importance of our our perspectives on story and the importance of storytelling. And as a historian, I got really tired of of texts on plaques because people walk by them, you know, and, and they're great. I'm I'm a huge history nerd. I stop and read them, but not everybody does. Um, and it's hard to 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 put them out and in five languages of the five different communities who are coming through, and then someone else still can't read them. And so thinking about how do you evoke emotion and talk about difficult topics in a different way that has a broader impact. And I kept coming back to public art, um, and I kept getting sort of pulled into spaces where there were conversations around public art, whether that was during the disaster that happened at the Walker a few years ago, or... Um, but Amakaska and the great public art there that, that we advocated for and, and supported um, Native artists like uh, Angela Two Stars and, and Mona Smith and our, and our good ally, Sandra Spieler. Um, you know, those public art projects, I ended up getting pulled more and more into those because I realized that I had spent so long focusing on these difficult histories. And that acknowledgement piece, again, was incredibly important. We had to have that truth-telling. We have to continue to advocate for that. But I also, as a mother, wanted to think about the possibilities of the future and be hopeful. And so there was a way within art where you can do all of that. And whenever I think about, you know, some of my favorite artists, again, it brings me back to my, my good friend Jim Denemy, 
you know, his his paintings had this this wonderful wit about them. And he would tackle tough topics with humor and color in a way that, you know, you don't most people can't do. Um, And so looking at the ways in which the visual arts have this this opportunity or, or have this sort of possibility within them to talk about complex topics, evoke emotion, um, add nuance in a way that texts either can't do or is hard to do on a small plaque within a space. Um, you know, they, they have this power that it, they have this power more than words that I really, really love. And, you know, so and for me, again, I was trying to figure out to go from my, my professional life in public history, talking with my father about, you know, I spent all these years in history and I'm being pulled to the arts and now I have this opportunity for this new job. And he said, well, it's the same thing. It's all about storytelling. And I realized he was right. Speaking of storytelling and creating those conversations and history and art and being pulled in, in a couple different directions, you helped curate um, our home, Native Minnesota, while you were at the um, History Center in St. Paul. Can you talk a little bit about what that exhibit is about and, and why it was important for you to, to help curate that and, and create that story? I think for me, it was creating a permanent space within the historical society, within the history center. I, I had been going into that building for years. I did a lot of my dissertation research there. Um, I have a long family history there where in, in, in terms of, again, relationships were not always very good. And I think that for me, um, as a Native person who was directing a Native team, you know, I was the director of Native American Initiatives and I had a full Native team of people working with me uh, to advocate for and with Native people throughout the space. And we deserve to be seen within that space. And so we fought and worked very hard to be able to, to within the text, say I and we, because we were a part of the place, um, both internally and externally. And uh, my, uh, the co-creator of that exhibit uh, with me was um, a boys fort, a uh, Jibwe uh, scholar and extraordinaire by the name of Dr. Maddie Harper DiCarlo. And she and I worked really closely together with, with our great friends and, and colleagues to really think about what kind of exhibit does our community want to see? You know, she and I have both taught in Native studies at different colleges and are so used to doing the 101 of this is who we are. Um, and we can do that. And we still have to keep doing that. We're not going to give up on doing that because it's important. But we also realized and knew that we wanted to create a space that Native people wanted to come to as well um, and that uh, touched on topics at a deeper level and that really touched on topics that were important to our communities. And so we did a lot of community engagement and with local educators and community members and tribes in order to, to really get a pulse of, of what people wanted within that space and then tried to reflect it both within the text on the panels, the content, the, the collections that are there, um, the artists that are represented, um, and then and pull through some media as well where we really are elevating the voices of our communities there. 
It's a great opportunity. Um, did you visit a lot of museums as a young child? Um, you know, what what was your experience then versus now with uh, with museums and kind of these more formal uh, showcases of art? My parents did take me to a lot of museums. <laughs> um, and I think part of it was my dad uh, was a community organizer who was actually featured in a couple museums in different spaces. So I remember at one point we lived in Lincoln, Nebraska, and on a school field trip, we were able to go to a local museum. And I didn't even know that my dad was featured in an exhibit with some, some, something witty and smart that he had said. Um, and as a child, you know, especially growing up in Nebraska, which was very white um, and and very much focused on that sort of pioneer life of history to Native kids. And, and we had, you know, there, there was a history there and a, and a connection there that was very hard for me as a young kid growing up in that space. But to be able to go into a museum and see my professional father, a Native man, um, be represented and, and respected, um, that really, to me, made a big impact. And I think that what I realized is that within these public spaces, um, not everyone feels welcome in museums. Not everyone grew up going to museums like I did. And I try and take my kids to museums. They love going to museums. Uh, they create museum walls in our house where they put up their artwork. But because of that history of extraction and that traumatic history between our communities and, and the, the people who, who created these spaces, a lot of our population does not feel comfortable coming into these spaces. Um, and so how do we break down those barriers? How do we create a space that people not only feel welcome, but are welcome? I'm going to switch directions on you a little bit because you've done um, a lot of work around place names here in Minnesota. Um, I, we, we know Bede Makaska uh, was one of your most recent and, and pretty large efforts. Can you talk a little bit about, um, especially here in Minnesota, at Minnesota, right? Dakota in and of itself, and we have a lot of place names. Um, that are Dakota and Ojibwe. Um, but why was that, uh, that particular name change, just honoring the original name of a lake in the area, um, such a, a community fight? You know, it's interesting because I know that there had been efforts before to change the name of Lake Calhoun. Um, and oftentimes it was a community member or somebody in the, in the neighborhood who found out that John C. Calhoun was, uh, was a, a slavery advocate, was pro-slavery. And so there were efforts to change his name, to change the name of the lake to Hubert Humphrey Lake. And, and um, I know people had talked about Walter Mondale Lake. And there had been all these different ideas, again, of, of, of replacing that lake name with another white male. <laughs> and, and I think one of the things that drew me, drew me to this space and, and drew my family to this space is this is one of the first places we came to when we moved back to Minnesota. After not having the privilege of growing up here, our father brought my sisters and I there because our grandfather, Charles Eastman, Ohiesa, had, had written about our family living there. And we knew it was a really important place. And so a lot of our, our Eastman family members, and, and we live all over the place. We're in Lower Sioux, Sisseton, Flandreau. And a lot of us come back to, to this lake and see it as home. 
and we still visit it. And I remember the first time I went there, I did not see us represented. There was a tiny plaque that you had very outdated language, outdated language. And it was frustrating to me that for the first time in my life, I felt like I was home because I had grown up all over the country and had traveled all over the country then, both as a child and an adult, um, looking for something. And I never realized I was, I was really looking for where I belonged. And going to that lake was the first time I felt like this is it. This is home. And we weren't represented. And so looking around, seeing the runners, seeing how affluent that neighborhood is, I decided, you know, that I really wanted to know more about that space. And that actually is what drew me to graduate school. And my dissertation focused on the history of, uh, part of my dissertation focused on the history of our family and community there at that Hiato Tungwe community. And so I learned a lot about that community. And doing that research, I found that the John C. Calhoun was a former South Carolina senator who uh, not only advocated for slavery, but um, pushed for the expansion of slavery across the Western states, which some people knew about. But not a lot of people knew that he also created the Bureau of Indian Affairs and that he had drafted the first um, draft of the Indian Removal Acts, which led to the Cherokee Trail of Tears and the displacement and death of thousands of indigenous people and different policies of genocide. And so there was this indigenous history to this space, as well as this African-American history that was tied to this space that was really interesting. And I came to find out that, that John C. Calhoun had never actually stepped foot in Minnesota. Um, and the only reason that lake was named after him was because he authorized the construction of Fort Snelling, which was the space where the concentration camp, where my grandfather, Makpiawichasha, who led that community, died. Um, and so I started putting these puzzle pieces together. And about maybe 10 years ago, you know, it, it became a national conversation in terms of legacy. Um, you know, the, these different efforts had popped up over the years to really think about who is it that we honor. And I believe it was, it was a, a shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, um, that had sparked um, the name Calhoun up once again. And so people were talking about taking that name, removing it from spaces. Yale College was going to uh, students were, were talking about removing Calhoun from their dormitory. Um, you started seeing people trying to, to take the Calhoun statues down in South Carolina. And you started seeing um, this conversation happen nationally as it's tied to, to African-American history and slavery. And here in Minnesota, I started to see these newspaper reports come up. And I was <laughs> in my family, we were wondering, well, do they know his ties to Native people? And so we just started speaking up. Um, eventually my twin sister and I were, were asked to be a part of a, a, um, community advisory committee around the remaster plan of, of, uh, Lake Harriet, Uma and Makaska at that time known as Lake Calhoun. And we didn't go out asking for a name change. We simply went out again as storytellers and said, this is who we are. And this is our connection to this place. And we talked with people who historically had not been talked about, different diverse communities across the area who, you know, um, did not feel welcome at that space because it was a very affluent, wealthy space. Um, and so it was interesting in that when it came time to do recommendations, all of these communities said, our number one recommendation is that name needs to go. 
and that will help us feel more welcome. And these were from non-Native people. We're saying we want the Native name. We want the Dakota name here. Um, and they were advocating for that. And so, you know, what, why it happened when it did is because there was, there was community support and there was a lot of public education that went into it. Uh, we did a lot of neighborhood meetings, a lot of community teachings, a lot of community conversations, meeting with, with county commissioners and, and different people because we had to go through all these different levels of government to get the change to happen. And so, you know, it was interesting because it, it, it was really about getting word out there, um, helping people to understand why it was an issue, um, and helping people to, to understand what could be done about it. You know, I remember at one point we were in a Hennepin County meeting and there was a commissioner who was opposed to the name, name restoration. Um, and he said, uh, and I remember the quote, he said, slavery is the darkest stain on our country, but it is what it is. And I remember wow. sitting there with my children and looking at them and thinking, but it doesn't have to be. And thinking, what, what, what are we going to do about it? You know? And, and coming from a, a family where, where my father's community organizer, my father, my mother is a, a kindergarten and preschool teacher, you know, I'm very much always thinking about how do you, how, are, how can we be kind <laughs> and how do we help educate each other and, and develop empathy? Hey, I think that, that being kind to each other and that Empathy, I mean, I, I think they're human values, mm -hmm. right? But they're especially Dakota values. Yes. And I think in a lot of these conversations, you know, we really have to start by grounding ourselves in those values so that we can have authentic, productive conversations that, you know, result in, in positive outcomes. And in this case, the, the name change. Um, we got to wrap up here. Unfortunately, I could talk to you for hours because <laughs> you have all kinds of uh, great things to share with us. But um, just to kind of wrap up, can you talk a little bit about maybe some valuable lessons you've learned in your career um, for, for people who, you know, want to maybe get into a public art space or community organizing or, you know, what are some tips that you could give folks as they look to figure things out? I think, you know, my, my twin sister, Carly Bad Hurtbull, and I have talked a lot about what has helped us to be successful professionally because both of us dropped out of high school when we were 15. Um, both of us struggled to, to really uh, find our place in the world. And now as mothers, we look back and really think about what is it that helped us to be successful. And for us, it was reconnecting to our language. It was um, prayer and and, you know, really understanding and, and, um, and respecting who we are as Dakota women and, and learning more about that. But I think that, you know, when it comes down to, to the work that we've been able to do, it's really about persistence and not taking no for an answer, um, which is that, that organizing side, right? And, and that rebellious side. I mean, we're, we're old punk rockers. <laughs> and so... For us, it was, it was knowing and accepting that we were going to walk into uncomfortable spaces and figuring out how to succeed while feeling uncomfortable, um, knowing how to hear no and think of it as a first step towards something else 
um, really taking th- uh, some of these barriers in, in, in pieces. You know, the, the, the name restoration was a long process with a lot of different systems of government, with a lot of meetings where there was a lot of different decisions to be made. And there was strategy on how to do that. Um, and so really thinking strategically about how to be successful and being persistent enough that you don't give up. You talk about, you know, pulling along your sister, maybe her pulling you along um, and being in these spaces. I think as Native people, whether it's, you know, a sister by blood or a sister um, by choice, right? Yeah. Uh, Leaning on each other is really important, I think, in our kind of communal societies and leaning on those traditions and um, definitely leaning on each other and pulling each other into these sort of conversations and um, I think is really important. So it's, it's wonderful to hear you comment on you know, we got to kind of band together, right? Absolutely. There's power in numbers, especially when there's so few of us. We have to come together. You know, and my twin sister, we always, you know, I know in our culture, you know, my Czech pa, we, we feel like we can conquer the world. We're very different people. But when our when we join forces, there's like a superpower. Um, and and we, we each bring our own expertise and our own skill to the table and, and are able to accomplish a lot and are able to uplift and elevate um, each other's uh, in doing the work. But a big piece of it, too, that I always go back to is, is a teaching of my grandmother, my grandmother Lillian, who was um, 101 when she passed away in Flanders, South Dakota. And she was so positive. She was so happy. And for me, it's that, you know, even though she had gone through so much in her life, um, that, that, that positive outlook, and that value of positivity is so hard to have when you're living in such a difficult world and going through so many obstacles and when life is hard. But if you can hold on to that positive outlook, you can do anything. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we don't have an opportunity to fail like other people do. And we have to work 10 times harder and it's not fair. And the only way to make it through is to remain positive because we've got our little ones watching and they deserve the best. Absolutely. They absolutely do. And our ancestors paved the way for us, and we now get to pave the way for uh, our up-and-coming generation. Absolutely. Yes. And, and people like you are, are role models for my little girls, and I'm just so appreciative of all that you do for our communities. Well, thank you, and right back at you. I, <laughs> we've got some wonderful role models in our community here, and yes, I'm grateful for all of them. Kate, thank you so much for being here today. I so appreciate your time and willingness to to share your experience with us. So thank you. Thank you for joining me for the Native Minnesota podcast. For more episodes, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You can also visit our website, understandnativemn.org, to learn more about our campaign's work to improve the Native narrative in Minnesota's public schools.